millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're going to be continuing our economics mini-series by talking about how we lost the gold standard, a.k.a. Dude, where's my bullion? Before we get started, we found out recently, uh, there's actually some cool tech where you can find out what you guys listen to, which I don't know how they figure that out, but they do. Maybe it's the Acast app, but... Uh, those of you guys who use Acast, you really like history podcasts. We've learned that. And I do too. And so we wanted to give you a quick intro to a history podcast we're very fond of. It's, of course, another great Agora podcast, and it's called American Biography by Thomas Daly. And one of the things Thomas does really well in American Biography is he uses a very narrative structure about history, which is in its own not too unique, but what Tom does is he digs up the people in American history that haven't got their opportunity to see the light of day, uh, even though they had a very big impact on the trajectory that the United States has taken so far. So if you want to learn the secret history of the important but unsung people in American history told in narrative format, Tom is the guy for you. Go check out American Biography on Acast, iTunes, or wherever great podcasts are sold. I guess they're not sold. Wherever, you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely check out American Biography. Um, it's, it's a great way to learn about parts of American history that you, you know, matter, but that you probably haven't heard about. Um, real, almost certainly not. Almost certainly not, yeah. Um, real quick housekeeping, if you are enjoying the show... If you're enjoying Reconsider, we would very much appreciate you taking 30 seconds and going on your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Google Play, Acast, Overcast, whatever you use, and just leave us a, a review. More reviews moves us up further into the ranking, and we can get out our message to more people. And, of course, if you really love the show, we'd love if you go to patreon.com slash reconsider, and you can join us in the Dan Carlin model of a buck a show. And if you want to give more... There's perks in it for you. Go check it out, patreon.com slash reconsider. And of course, we always love your feedback and ideas. We just got some great feedback today about the last episode that we put out that we're finding very handy. So thank you. Uh, find us on social media at reconsiderpod, either on Facebook or Twitter. And with that, diving right in. So last time we talked about fiat currency, oh, what it is and how it's distinct from a physical commodity-backed currency, like using the gold standard. And we got into some of the 
concerns people have over the Federal Reserve, which is the body that prints money and decides interest rates, which has a lot of power in a fiat currency. We didn't get into a lot of detail on why the United States moved from a gold standard to a fiat currency. And this history is a lot of the sort of other side of that story, right? So you have people that are concerned that our fiat system is financially troublesome for us. Uh, and then on the other side, we have a history of what the United States was like under the gold standard. Starting in the 20th century, things got a little hairy. So even though we left the gold standard, and in fact, we had two versions of it, some people still want to go back to the gold standard, as we talked about last time. As a quick summary, some of the advocates for the gold standard believe that in particular, the power that the Federal Reserve has and the incentives it has along with that power are dangerous for the economy. And why is that? One of the arguments in favor of the gold standard is that it acts as a control on inflation. So you can imagine if prices go up a lot, but wages don't uh, grow at the same rate as prices, then wages are gradually being eroded over time. And the way this argument goes is that you can actually measure wage earning ability relative to the price of gold. And since the price of gold has gone up so much since the end of the gold standard, that is representative of inflation getting beyond the, the means of wages to support those price increases. Yeah, and of course, we can see this in extreme cases such as in Zimbabwe or other hyperinflation areas where, you know, instead of actually dealing with underlying problems, governments just keep printing money uh, and all of a sudden you have to take a wheelbarrow to the store to buy a loaf of bread, a.k.a. I really like 50 cent or as we call them in Zimbabwe, $40 million. <laughs> um, so there's also... Um a case to be made that, that workers would be better off under the gold standard. Of course, there's a lot of disagreement here. So, you know, if you get paid in directly in gold ounces, your purchasing power would not have decreased over time because gold has gone up to, to match prices. Of course, you wouldn't be paid directly in gold, but you'd be paid in something that theoretically is directly convertible into gold. So gold hawks think that, or gold hawks are people that are in favor of the gold standard think that inflation, even though it's not actually that high right now, it's hovering a little bit below 2%, um, has over time inflated away much of, the, of most people's earnings power. So it actually has left us poor over time. And this has become more relevant as more attention has been paid to the growing uh, wage gap um, between the high, highest income earners and sort of those in the medium and lower gap. And Eric, you've done some work also on the gap between productivity and worker pay, which I, I don't know if we want to get into a lot of that detail now, but we can. Well, what we can do is we can just post a link to those two articles on the show notes here. So if you want to look at the research I did on that, it was actually really interesting. I learned a lot from it. It's sort of, uh, as usual, not as simple as you think. And so you can go check that out, show notes, reconsidermedia.com slash podcast, and find this episode. The other big argument in favor of limiting money supply or, or restraining the ability to print money or lower interest rates in some way, the gold, op gold standard being one option for that. The other argument for that is the Austrian case. And they believe that uh, many, many Austrian... 
Some Austrians do believe in returning to the gold standard because a fixed or limited money supply would mean that interest rates are self-correcting rather than runaway. And so what that would mean is that, you know, if the demand for money went up, the interest rate on money would go up. If the demand goes down, the interest rate would go down. Now, the quick question is, who are the Austrians? They're the inheritors of the Austrian school of economics made famous by Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, the latter of which won the Nobel Prize for Economics. And he was the main sort of foil to Keynes back in the day. And the case that they make is that, you know, the Fed will lower interest rates to help a flagging economy, but they believe that the Fed has perverse incentives. Nobody wants to be the one who spoils the party. Nobody wants to be the one that says, okay, I know everything's going great right now, but we need to raise the interest rates because things could get bad in the future. And they say that this causes bubbles that burst because money is too freely available. uh, It's too cheap. And so people get money really cheap and they want to go invest it. They find things to invest in. Um, It's also the case that when the Fed interest rate is low, savings rates are lower. And so it doesn't make as much economic sense for an individual person to save it. So they're going to go invest it in something. They tend to put it in things such as the stock market, real estate, etc. And so they make the case that this causes bubbles that burst, that invariably burst, and that's bad. And they say, hey, if you have gold, you have a limited supply of money. So that the interest rate is going to shift with demand. So if too many people want too much money, well, the interest rate goes up. So only the um, highest value investments, uh, likely investments, are going to be funded. And also the interest rate for savings goes up. And so people actually put cash back into the banks to be loaned out so that you've actually got real money being thrown around. Um, And then in a recession, the demand for capital goes down because people are tightening up. And so the interest rate goes down. Uh, again, basically because of fixed supply. So the incentive to use capital goes back up. And the idea is that it's fairly self-correcting. And of course, could the Fed do this? Does it need to be the gold standard? Of course not. Um, The Fed could raise and lower interest rates in this way. But Austrians argue that historically it's done a bad job at this and that they have a political incentive, the Fed does, to keep rates artificially low when the bubble is happening. Uh, And as we talked about last time, the United States has a pretty high debt-to-GDP ratio right now, as well as pretty low interest rates. So there are Austrians that are worried that the Fed has not done a good job and that we're we're in a potential crisis moment. So in short, Goldhawks believe that if the dollar was tied to gold, the government couldn't take on as much debt. It couldn't reduce interest rates when they shouldn't be, and inflation would be more under control. And they say, being on the gold standard would have prevented what they think is a very dangerous bubble situation right now. So one of the arguments that people make is they'll point to fiat currency, which if you don't know what that is, check out the last episode. We talked about it a little bit. They'll point to fiat fiat currency and say, well, the Fed prints money with fake currency and that therefore undermines the value of the dollar and you can't do that with gold. Is that right, Eric? It's kind of true. There have definitely been historical examples where commodity currencies, which in which the values derived from a commodity such as gold, is still devalued. And uh, it actually caused hyperinflation in a very famous historical case. Yeah, having a gold standard is not actually a 100% surefire way to solve for inflation. One example is a very ancient example, ancient Rome, ancient Roman Empire to be exact. So in the third century AD, the Roman Empire suffered this this crisis called the crisis of the third century. And there's a rapid succession of emperors, just back to back civil wars and just a bunch of, you know, really 
awful stuff for a really long time. To pay for the ever-expanding militaries that, that went along with all of this back-and-forth warfare, emperors just debased the currency by mixing in cheaper metal with the uh, gold and silver. They used both for currency so that they could create more of it. So this was a form of inflation. There was an increase in the money supply, which debased or devalued the price of the currency or the value of the currency. Diocletian, who's an emperor that came to power towards the end of the 3rd century and is... Um, most known for establishing this thing called the Tetrarchy, but that's actually really not important. Diocletian came just a couple of centuries before Constantine, who you, that name you probably actually do know. Now, Diocletian tried to deal with hyperinflation by mandating fixed prices for everything. So he just said, okay, everywhere in the Roman Empire, grain is going to cost this much per pound, and you can't change it. And if someone tries to change it, that is a crime, and you didn't want to commit crimes in the ancient Roman Empire. So... For lots of reasons, that didn't work. Uh, the main takeaway from this historical example, though, is that while fiat currency can be printed, definitely, so can commodity, commodity currency to a degree. It's just a different context. Yeah, so a gold, in short, a gold standard is not a guarantee against inflation or even against a lot of the other problems that gold hawks are worried about. They do believe, however, that it would be place a greater restraint on the Federal Reserve's ability to make bad decisions with interest rates and cause too much inflation. So why then did we leave the gold standard in the first place? Yeah, nobody likes hyperinflation or bursting bubbles. So here's a question. If the gold standard could potentially solve these issues, why aren't we on the gold standard today? And to understand that, we have to look into why the United States left the gold standard in the first place. So it's history time! Party time. Excellent. Woo, woo, woo. Right? That's, woo, woo. Yeah. Um, so, quick history of the gold standard in the U.S. And this will... So what we're going to do now is trace the history of the gold standard in the U.S. up until the point where the U.S. left it. And the idea is sort of by walking you step by step through the process of, by which the U.S. left the gold standard, you'll understand why it happened. So to do that, we need to go way back to not quite the beginning, but close to it. The U.S. Be started, uh, you know, back in, in the late 18th century, early 19th century with a bimetallic standard that included both gold and silver. So it wasn't just a gold standard, it was a gold and silver standard. It worked with both. In 1834, gold became the de facto standard. Um, so silver was kind of left, although not officially. And we won't get into all the details here, but, but technically... The currency was still bimetallic, but the ratio between silver and gold changed. So it became more like a gold standard in 1834. That's the best way to think about it. Now, during the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, the U.S. issued paper, the U.S. government issued uh, currency paper that was not redeemable in gold. This made it a fiat currency because it was not backed by a commodity. The government did this because it was faced with really severe fiscal pressure from the war. Now, as you can imagine, as more currency was printed, quite a lot of inflation was experienced during the, during the Civil War. Following the Civil War in 1879, the U.S. returns to the gold standard. And this time, it is officially only a gold standard. It is no longer a bimetallic standard, not even technically. 
And believe it or not, this was actually a controversial issue in the day, whether or not to return to a bimetallic standard or only do a gold standard. Some really wanted a return of the silver standard and not just gold. Do not place upon my head a crown of thorns. Do not crucify me upon a cross of gold. That sounds sweet. I have no idea what it is, though. Oh, I forget who said it. He was running for Senate. Gah, I'll, I'm sure I'll remember it later. All right, cool. Well, it's a pretty sweet quote. So starting in 1879 and lasting up until 1933, so four years into the Great Depression, this is the only period in U.S. history that can truly be called a gold standard. That is, anyone, you, me, your brother, your sister, J.P. Morgan Bank, could exchange a dollar for a fixed amount of gold. Dollars were redeemable in gold from 1879 to 1933. Now, when most people talk about leaving the gold standard, they actually think about the end of the Bretton Woods system. And we'll come back and talk about what the Bretton Woods system was. But the U.S. left the Bretton Woods system in 1971. However, leaving the Bretton Woods system was not originally intended as a step to leave the gold standard. Uh, the dollar went through several repegs to gold, meaning that one dollar was redeemable in different quantities of gold for from a period between 1971 to 1975. The U.S. was trying to delay convertibility for a while, while it got some hand, while it got a handle around a lot of issues that it was dealing with at the time. So. At first, the suspension of convertibility from the dollar to gold was meant to be temporary. The U.S., um, however, as time went on, the U.S. recognized that it had repegged the dollar to gold too many times, and really at this point, there's no going back. So starting in 1976, the U.S. went all in as a fiat currency, and the world really became governed by fiat currencies as of 1976, the dollar was completely severed in terms of its price fluctuations from gold prices. So as Xander mentioned, there were a whole lot of steps involved in moving away from the gold standard starting in 1933. And in the middle of the Great Depression, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt enacts Executive Order 66, I mean 6102. And this killed the Jedi and forced the U.S. citizens to soak. <laughs> President Roosevelt was such a dick. <laughs> yeah. He is the Senate. Um, it forced U.S. citizens to sell gold to the government at the prevailing rate. So it is a little bit like, wow, you know, can you imagine that if the government came by and said, like, you have to sell us this? Like, too bad. I guess they do it with real estate sometimes. But uh, U.S. citizens had to sell gold to the government at the prevailing rate, which is $20.67 per ounce, um, threatening them with fines and punishments if they refused. And after this, the government overnight revalued gold to $35 an ounce, effectively increasing the money supply some. So congratulations. You've now been forced to sell your gold at $27. And as soon as you do, it's now worth $35. Bummer. Yeah, sucks for you, right? You'll notice 1933, that was the end of this period that we talked about from 1879 to 1933, in which the dollar was truly convertible to gold. What happened next is the U.S. ended the convertibility of dollars into gold partially, and this was in 1934. Now, what do I mean by partially? Well, first off, it means that central banks could still convert dollars to gold, but not individuals. So why did the U.S. do this? Well, in, in 1933, as I mentioned, the U.S. was already several years into what was going to become the Great Depression. Or I guess at that point, it was kind of already becoming the Great Depression, but it's just started as a really bad recession, right? And 
the U.S. government felt that it needed to increase money supply in order to help combat that depression, in order to bring interest rates back down and increase lending and the availability of credit in the economy. And the, the overnight instant repeg that Eric just talked about, where the U.S. government offered $20.67 an ounce and then the next day raised convertibility to $35 an ounce, was effectively the way that the U.S. government increased money supply, even though it was still on the gold standard at the time. And so after attempting to increase the monetary supply by pulling in gold and increasing the value of gold or the, the, the convertibility value of gold in dollars, the U.S. ended convertibility of dollars into gold in 1934. And the question is why? This move in 1934 was called the Gold Reserve Act, and it repegged the dollar to gold exchange rate from about $20 to $35, where it would remain until the 1970s. But commercial banks had lost confidence in the U.S. economy, no big surprise, and they began converting their dollars into gold before that, right? So what was happening was that between 1939, between 1929 and 1933, commercial banks were saying, man, this dollar thing isn't looking very good. We should hang on to gold, right? Which is something that people tend to do in recessions. So they started doing that en masse. Seemed like a good idea for each of them individually. But the problem is it led to a rapid decrease in gold held by the government, which feared then that they would arrive at a point where they wouldn't have enough gold reserves left over to satisfy the potential demand if more people converted dollars into gold. And at that point, if you run out of gold, I mean, it's like a run on the bank, right? The whole thing falls apart. So they're looking like they're in trouble. So converting dollars to gold decreased the money supply since as banks traded in dollars for gold, the amount of dollars in circulation decreased. And gold that was held outside of the U.S. Treasury's control increased. So the decrease in money supply caused by banks exchanging dollars for gold was actually exacerbated by a high interest rate environment at the time. And rates were kept high in order to keep people from cashing in their deposits to gold. Because if interest rates were really high, you think, okay, well, I might as well keep my money in a savings account. I'm getting paid for it, right? But the problem is that the high interest rates restrained that lending. It decreased the amount of credit that was available in the economy. Low credit kept business investment low, and that essentially made the contraction of 1929, the onset of the recession, a lot worse. And a lot of economists and historians believe that it was this contraction in money supply between 1929 and 1933, due both to the high interest rates as well as banks cashing in dollars for gold, that was responsible for taking a bad recession and turning it into the Great Depression. Yeah, in kind of a perfect world, when you have a recession, interest rates drop, again, so that people have an incentive to invest, right? You've got cheap capital out there, you've got cheap labor out there, and you've got cheap money, so go nuts. You can take some risks. But because of those high interest rates, people weren't willing to take those kinds of risks. And you actually... Uh, you actually have a pretty f historically famous political cartoon, which we'll post by Thomas Nass, about rich people sitting on their money, uh, on like a pile of money as outside their window there are poor people starving. And it was sort of a – it was a twofold – criticism. One of them is that, you know, they're not sharing it, but most importantly, they're not doing anything with it. There are people who want to work and people with money to pay them, but that wasn't happening because those interest rates were so high. So in summary, 
Effectively, the gold standard prevented the Federal Reserve from loosening monetary policy. Loose monetary policy means increased money supply, more dollars in circulation. And the result from this inability to loosen uh, money supply was very serious deflation. So the opposite of inflation, when prices are actually decreasing. And at the time, it it went up as high as 10%. So negative 10% inflation or 10% deflation. Now, after the Gold Reserve Act was enacted, deflation fell. It would never again fall below negative 2.1%. So just as a side note here, as I mentioned, deflation is when prices fall. And this is not something that has happened much in modern American economic history. So if you've never heard of deflation, this is why. We're more, more used to hearing about inflation when prices go up. Now, very high inflation, which the U.S. has also never really had. I mean, people will say hyperinflation, but really hyperinflation is meant to refer to levels of inflation above like 50%, not even like 10%, 50% and above. And hyperinflation is dangerous because it threatens eroding the power of your money. So if you're earning, I don't know, $100 a week and prices are going up a lot, then that $100 buys you less over time. Deflation is dangerous because if prices keep going down, then people are encouraged to save their money and spend it later, since that money will be able to buy them more in the future when prices go down. However, the problem with deflation is that it encourages less spending, and it decreases the total amount of consumption in the economy and therefore hampers economic growth. So here's where the implementation of the gold standard breaks down in this particular historical instance. What's supposed to happen is that a fixed money supply means the cost of money goes down as demand for capital goes down, which it did due to the 1929 contraction. But as we can see above, that failed to happen. The United States had to alter its implementation of the system to try to increase the money supply and bring down interest rates, which were stuck at a high level. So this Gold Reserve Act of 1934 required all gold held by the Federal Reserve banks, right? There's, there is the Federal Reserve, but they also have different branches. It required all of the gold held by Federal Reserve banks to be turned over to the U.S. Treasury. It also outlawed private ownership of gold, making it illegal for U.S. citizens to own or trade gold anywhere, except with some exceptions for jewelry. And now this was all relaxed later on in the 1960s. Obviously, you can own gold today. Isn't that crazy that for 30 years you couldn't own gold? It's just illegal. It's a crime. Just absolutely bonkers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So this Gold Reserve Act was moved by the government to both free its hand to enact looser monetary policy to try to counteract the deflation, which many economists say is responsible for turning the recession of 1929 into the Great Depression, as well as to effectively eliminate the demand on gold that a convertible dollar had that risked the government's gold reserves. And so the United States nationalizing all its gold reserves and forcing regional Federal Reserve banks to send it to the U.S. Treasury is what was going on, letting the U.S. enact that looser monetary policy now that it effectively controlled the supply of money. And the result was a decrease in deflation and an average increase in gross national product from 1933 to 1937 of 8%, in large part due to an accompanied increase in money supply. There was this study in the Journal of Economic History by a researcher named Christina Romer that showed uh, supposedly that all of the economic recovery that happened between 1933 and when the U.S. entered World War II was due to the U.S. government's ability to increase money supply, to loosen its monetary policy. This, this escape from the deflationary spiral and my new metal band was made possible <laughs> by the end of the dollar's convertibility to gold and not a self-correcting mechanism. However, it's important important to know that there are different interpretations of this intra-depression recovery, so this time period between 1933 and approximately 1941, and that attributing it entirely to loose monetary policy and, and the U.S. getting off the gold standard is just one explanation. Yeah, I mean, it's quite complicated, right? There was a double dip depression after 1937. It went back down. And so what caused that? You know, some people will believe that the New Deal spending was important to create demand, increase money velocity, and give people spending power. Others will tell you there wasn't a real fix until the war happened. And that's a whole other kettle of fish because suddenly people started thinking war is good for the economy when what you're doing is converting your entire national production into stuff that you send over to Europe to get blown up rather than built at home. So... The, you know, to this day, the, the causes of recovery of the Great Depression are, like, complicated. And if anyone tells you, like, oh, it was, it was clearly this, like, either they're an economist who has written a book about it and they have a good case or they're crazy. <laughs> There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Yes. Here on Reconsider, you'll learn there is no middle ground. Everything is <laughs> black and white. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So that's what happened. And then everything kind of, like, kept chugging along until... Bretton Woods. And what is Bretton Woods? Well, Bretton Woods is the sort of global agreement about gold that came post-World War II. The United States dollar uh, ended up based on an official exchange rate of $35 an ounce. However, the U.S. dollar at this point was not convertible to gold for companies and individuals. So the U.S. was still on the gold standard, but you, your brother, your mother, and your grandmother still cannot convert a dollar to gold. And grandma would still be hauled off to jail if she melted her jewelry and sold it. It's, it's a crime. Um, <laughs> the value of the U.S. dollar was determined by the price of gold without the U.S. Treasury guaranteeing that it would actually convert dollars to physical gold. That's kind of hard to wrap your head around. So gold still determined the value of the dollar, but you couldn't take a dollar in to you know a bank and say, here, I want to convert this into, um, into gold. You can do it. However, 
the dollar was convertible into gold for other countries' central banks. So without in getting into a ton of detail, the reason that this was allowed to happen was to manage exchange rate fluctuations. So, so the rate of exchange between a dollar and other types of currencies. So after World War II, currencies for a lot of other countries were pegged to the dollar. And since the dollar was pegged to the price of gold, that effectively meant that other countries' currencies was also ultimately underpinned and supported by gold. Yeah, and one of the reasons, or the big reason the United States became this global currency was, of course, that most of the rest of the world had been burned to the ground and uh, their economies were junk. And so after the war, um, the United States, one, had a strong economy, relatively stable currency, and two, the Marshall Plan, which funded the reconstruction of Europe, um, was paid for in dollars. So tons of dollars flowed into Europe, which was most of the rest of the global economy besides the United States. And by 1959, the United States dollars in circulation now exceeded the amount of gold supporting their value still mandated $35. Oof, this is a lot to take in. We're just going to refresh you real quick and let you know where we are. We are... We are trying to explain how the gold standard in the U.S. failed, and we've now covered the period from basically the beginning of the U.S. up through when a true gold standard was implemented, up through the Gold Standard Act of 1933, sorry, 1934, that made it um, illegal for individuals to own gold. And now we're walking you through this Bretton Woods system that, that was created after World War II, and we're going to explain how that failed. So... As Eric mentioned, by 1959, the, the amount of U.S. dollars in circulation exceeded the amount of gold supporting the value of those dollars, even though the exchange rate was still mandated as one ounce of gold becomes $35. So the price of gold sort of bifurcated. It split off. On there, There's a London exchange, and on this London market, gold was valued at about $40 per ounce. However... The mandated exchange rate in the Bretton Woods system was still $35 an ounce. So you had a divergence between what you can actually get on a market in another country for your gold versus what the U.S. guaranteed it would convert dollars into. That meant that countries could buy gold at the Bretton Woods price, $35 an ounce, and sell it on the free market at $40 an ounce for a gain. And this began to deplete the U.S. gold reserves. Yep, this is what we call economic arbitrage. And when you try to price fix things, this tends to happen, whether it's milk or dollars and gold, and it can sometimes bite you in the butt. And if you're asking, why didn't the US just float, uh, you know, repeg its price to the free markets, you know, to the, the London markets value, then it would have been a fiat currency, it wouldn't be pegged anymore. So uh, they had to peg it to something for it to be a gold standard. And on the alternative market, you just had a different price that was driving arbitrage opportunity. France noticed this arbitrage opportunity and began reducing its own reserves of dollars in exchange for gold. And remember, countries could still convert dollars into gold, even though you couldn't. This began putting even more pressure on U.S. gold reserves because France was essentially giving the U.S. government dollars and sucking gold out of the U.S. Treasury Reserves. Um, and um, this just resulted in even less and less gold being held by the U.S. Treasury to support the value of the dollar. So we get to 1960, 
And there's this Belgian economist named Robert Triffin, and he made an observation about a contradiction in the gold standard system as it existed at the time. So recall that Bretton Woods, the gold standard that exists after World War II, was underpinned by central banks being able to convert gold into dollars. Central banks could still do this. Now, to provide liquidity to the rest of the world, which just means enough dollars to facilitate transactions, the U.S. had to be a net exporter of dollars. So there had to be more dollars flowing out of the U.S. than flowing in because all or much of the rest of the world depended on dollars in order to conduct their transactions because their currencies were pegged to dollars. This was essentially necessary to support the Bretton Woods system for two reasons. Uh, One, provide the world a sufficient supply of dollars that gold could then be converted for uh, because the dollar was the only currency convertible in the Bretton Woods system. You couldn't actually convert other currencies directly into gold, even though they were indirectly supported by the value of gold. So supplying these dollars was necessary to maintain the credibility of the system. That's one. Two, the U.S. needed to provide other countries with dollars for their own reserve currency purposes. Since the U.S. dollar was the only currency convertible to uh, to gold, if more countries around the world chose to cash in their dollars for gold, it would put even more pressure on U.S. Treasury gold reserves, um, thereby even further decreasing confidence in the system. So there had to be dollars available and provided to countries so that they could hold dollars as reserves instead of gold so that the U.S. could continue to hold on to its gold supply and not have it be depleted. Okay, so... We have to be exporting dollars in order to maintain the gold standard. Sounds good, right? Well, the problem is the way you create you the way you export dollars is you have to buy stuff from abroad. What you have to do is you have to send dollars abroad and get them stuff in return. So the US had to run a trade deficit, right? It had to import more than it exported. And over time, the trade deficit would also undermine confidence in the system because other countries would fear that with sufficient trade deficits, the U.S. would end its convertibility to gold. So now you have a catch-22. To support the Bretton Woods convertibility system, the U.S. needed to maintain a trade deficit, exporting dollars and increasing the global supply, but to maintain confidence from the rest of the world that it wouldn't suspend convertibility, it would need to run a trade surplus. You cannot run a trade surplus and a trade deficit at the same time. There was an inherent contradiction in the system, and it was called... Triffin Dilemma! (laughs) And one possible solution to the contradiction was to raise interest rates, attracting more money from abroad and bring it back home so other currencies back in our pockets, and cut the deficit, spending less money abroad. However, again, this risk stemming the supply of dollars needed in the rest of the world to maintain the system. So at this point, we're noticing in the 1960s that, the, and that from a global perspective, the gold standard is suffering from strain due to an inherent contradiction in its needs. Oof. So all of this is going on as of about 1960s when this observation was made. There was an exchange in London called the London Gold Pool. And this was 
initiated in 1961 as an attempt to solve this contradiction. So the plan was to provide the London gold pool a fixed amount of gold that it would sell or buy back from the market, so the market prices, to attempt to keep the market price of gold at the same price as the Bretton Woods price of gold, so $35 an ounce. And that ends the arbitrage. Now, actually, I have a a quick fun fact. Did you know that the logo for the London Gold Pool was actually Scrooge McDuck swimming in a pile of money? Seriously? No, of course not, you idiot. (laughs) Great, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. And as the 1960s (laughs) went on, the London Gold Pool also came under pressure, womp womp. The United States increased its trade deficits in large part due to the Vietnam War, creating US, more US dollars to send abroad, which devalued the market price of the dollar to gold and made it harder for the London gold pool to balance the exchange because they had to keep pushing the price of the dollar back up. And in 1967, France caught on to something. They announced that it was pulling out of the pool and demanded a further exchange of dollars for gold, further decreasing the United States reserves as gold. And then also, a little later in 1967, Britain devalued the pound by 14.3%. And this is actually a huge deal, driven in part by two things. One, heavy government spending that the British had uh, in large part due to the fact that they were still essentially running a wartime economy and also a massive interruption in maritime commerce caused by the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, I know this gets complicated, which resulted in the shutdown of the Suez Canal and forced British troops uh, to go the long way around from Africa. And when they got back to Britain, docks were shut down due to dockyard worker strikes. And so the, the pound is being devalued at the same time. Ooh, so Britain faces this problem. It could either take on lots and lots of new debt or, as Eric said, devalue the pound. However, and I'm sure you're noticing a trend now, devaluing the pound put even more pressure on U.S. gold reserves. The pound sterling was actually its own currency block. So it... it, um, it wasn't pegged to the U.S. dollar or to gold, right? It was it was floating independently of the other two. Yeah, it was not one of the currencies supported by the dollar. So devaluing the pound massively decreased the amount for the pound because it was worth less and increased demand for the dollar because now it was worth more relatively. However, again, greater demand for the dollar meant that even more countries had a convertible claim to U.S. gold reserves and risked further depleting U.S. gold reserves. So many consider the 1967 devaluation of the pound sterling to really be the nail in the coffin of the Bretton Woods system. The the beginning of the end would really come four years later in 1971, but this is kind of what just pushed it over the over the over the ledge. The collapse of the London Gold Pool really ended the US's attempt to move market prices of gold in order to try to line them up with this $35 an ounce uh, prices mandated by the Bretton Woods. Now, this forced an official policy of recognizing that two gold prices exist. The, the U.S. just it, it, could, it couldn't keep market prices at 35 bucks. So the U.S. refused to sell gold to countries that engaged in gold sales with private individuals in an attempt to try to hold on to his reserves. Nevertheless, the, the divergence in prices created an opportunity for certain investors and traders and speculators to really profit as prices continued to diverge. And so, 
in the waning days of the gold standard in 1971, West Germany, which had been steadfast in holding dollar reserves, even when France had traded in its dollars for gold, they finally threw in the can, formally abandoned the Bretton Woods system, withdrew their support for the dollar. France and Switzerland both followed, and this forced a rapid decline in the value of the dollar. Cheaper dollars meant that the market exchange rate of dollars to gold diverged even further from the official Bretton Woods market rate. And the situation at this point was just untenable. In 1971, Nixon ended all convertibility of dollars to gold. This was known as the Nixon shock. And I feel a little bad for the guy because it's called the Nixon shock when really it should be the like end of the Bretton Woods after many years of things going haywire for Bretton Woods shock. But, you know. I, I think, yeah, the thing to take away from that is if there were another president in office at that time, they probably would have been faced with exactly the same decision. Yeah, so we could also call it the Xander Shock. Yeah, exactly. Let's just call it the Xander Shock. Actually, that's also <laughs> another great name for a metal band. Xander Shock. Shock. <laughs> Coming to downtown LA this weekend. Actually, actually so, there's no show in downtown LA. Don't don't go there. Yeah, don't go there. It's a terrible place. Actually, it's nice. Downtown is really <laughs> no, turned around. Anyways, yeah, I do like it. I'm done. So here's what's crazy. What's crazy is this wasn't even us truly throwing in the towel. It was meant to be temporary. It was meant to be a temporary thing until we could sort things out and find a way to get back on the gold standard. But in the next five years, the hypothetical exchange rate of the dollar to gold continued to decline, uh, even though during this period, the government couldn't actually trade dollars for gold. And in 1976, five years later, the United States government officially abandoned the system entirely, stopped defining its official exchange rate from dollars to gold. And the world was now officially and largely running on fiat currency. Voila. That's the date. The gold standard 76. is dead, 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 dead. But it died gradually over a long time. That's why we left the gold standard. And contained in that narrative are fundamental problems with trying to maintain the gold standard. So we've sort of made a case that it's hard to keep a gold standard, especially as you know, others is you're not the only currency in town, which you know no one ever really will be again. And the question then is, even if we could find a way to maintain it, what would it take to re-peg the dollar to gold today? So in order to re-peg the dollar to gold, we'd have to take into account the total amount of dollars in circulation and the total amount of gold available to peg to those dollars. So um, for starters, we'd have to look at the total amount of M1 money supply. And if you listen to our prior episode on fiat currency, you will know that M1 money supply is the amount of highly liquid cash. So physical cash, checking deposits, that sort of thing. There's about $3.7 of M1 in circulation today. And the U.S. Treasury holds about 258 million ounces of gold. For... The U.S. Treasury's gold supply to support the amount of M1 in circulation, gold would therefore need to be pegged at about $14,175 per ounce. However, the current price of gold, um, it, you know, forgiving market fluctuations from the date of recording of this podcast, is about $1,300. So in order to re-peg dollars to gold at current market prices M1 money supply would need to be decreased by 90%, which, as you'll recall, would cause massive deflation. And you might ask, well, can't the gold supply just be increased? Possibly, yes. If the U.S. were to increase its holdings of gold 10x, it would have to buy all that gold, and thereby the United States would have to buy all that gold to increase its holdings tenfold, 
and it would be exporting trillions of US dollars to gold holders to be able to do that, which would, of course, leave you in an even worse situation than we had during the Bretton Woods system when the value of dollar was decreasing due to the number of dollars being exported abroad. And so the adjustment of making that kind of change to buy that much gold would be a massive shock to the economy. Deep breath. So let's just take a moment to recap what we've learned in this episode, because it's been a lot of history. It's been a lot of economic history, which is not the easiest of all sorts of history, and also a lot of economics generally. So first off, what did we learn? We learned we learned that there we learned about some of the arguments in favor of the gold standard that are circulating today, who supports them and why. We also learned about some of the arguments against the gold standard and the role that the gold standard had, according to many economists, although not all, in exacerbating the Great Depression. Then we looked at the demise of the Bretton Woods system from the end of World War II up through 1976. And it was this process over the course of 30 years that really finally put an end to the gold standard. And I think an observation that's worth making is that there was an inherent contradiction in the Bretton Woods system that that ultimately caused its own death. There is no way that the U.S. could both run a trade deficit and a trade surplus at the same time, which is essentially what would have been required for it to go on indefinitely. In the end, this episode should help you reconsider the gold standard. Of course, after some of the arguments that were made in favor of the gold standard by people like Ron Paul and by even chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, it seems like a pretty great thing. It seems to make a lot of sense. But as usual, it's a lot more complicated than that. Now, of course, can we say with can we say with perfect clarity that it is impossible to return to a gold standard or that it couldn't be handled differently next time? Of course not. However, it is a tough cookie to do. Um, and it the ways that economists imagine it happening now seem incredibly disruptive. And also, if we got back to it, it would be difficult to maintain and would place constraints that might have contributed to, for example, the Great Depression. So it's got a bunch of downsides as well. So if you're walking away from this episode thinking, oh my gosh, that's, that's just so complicated. It's so complex. You're right. That's the reality of it. It's not black and white. And remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you because they're probably going to oversimplify it and misrepresent the, the true complexity of reality. Pause, therefore, and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off. Stay tuned uh, next time, maybe, or a few episodes from now for our next episode on economics, Federal Reserve 2 Electric Boogaloo. We'll talk soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.